this, this afternoon is a funeral. This is not a memorial service. This funeral is in distinction from the increasingly popular memorial service, and it's distinguished by being a worship service upon the occasion of the death of a Christian, at which we use that occasion to witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the resurrection also of those who by faith have died in Christ. And now, having heard that, you understand why everybody's moving to memorial services. This service is not about Bob Kapowitz. We are using Bob as an excuse to strengthen our hope in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. We are here joined together as Christians on the occasion of the death of our dear brother in Christ, Robert Kapowitz. To worship our risen Lord Jesus and to testify that because he lives, we also will live. And especially Bob Kapowitz. I mean, has there been anybody in this room that has not been fantasizing about the welcome that Adam Spady gave to Bob? Adam was his doctor for years. Now uh, Tom is, but uh, you know you can just imagine Adam's—he was a little awkward of body. I think it's fair to say, but I think he would have put on a good dance and. Haven't we all been fantasizing for years about Bob dancing and him being able to sing and speak so that we can finally understand him? Although I had the joy a few weeks ago, well, not a few weeks ago, right when he got COVID, of going into his bedroom and he was lying flat on his back. And because of that, I heard him crystal clear. I said, Bob, what on earth? I don't have any trouble hearing you here. And he told me it was because his, his diaphragm was more able to give, uh, I guess it's air, am I right, lying down. And so he was able to speak in a way, and it was such a relief to me, because you always felt like such a failure. You know, Bob, I didn't get it again. Now, Bob, say it over. I'm sorry, Bob. I'm sorry. Say it again. Then you'd call over the interpreters, you know, because he was speaking in tongues, right? You know? And you'd say to them, would you tell me what he's saying? And then they'd, what? Come again, Bob? What? They, their head would go down lower and lower to him. And I have told people in the church here that the thing that was the, the, the scariest, I actually saw... Lucas, drop him. That was in front of our house. And I was uptight then, and I watched as Bob was, he was angry. You could see he was angry. But he wasn't angry. Do you understand? It was such a rebuke to me. This man depends on, and they can't even keep him upright. He hits his head on the concrete. And he's godly. Now, I'm not saying that Bob was a saint. He wasn't a saint. All of you have laughed nervously about his sense of humor. 
<laughs> and at times, if you ask for a translation of his speaking in tongues, sometimes you're just told no. <laughs> you know? Bobites know when to hold them and when to fold them. <laughs> you know? One time, he set up an appointment with me, and uh, he came in my office, and it was about sin. And so he asked his, his helper to stay outside of my office. That was the scariest time I ever had with Bob because I had no context. It wasn't food. It wasn't opera. It wasn't hello, goodbye. But it was something on his conscience he wanted to talk to me about, and consciences are by nature hidden. And so I didn't have context. And I was scared out of my wits, but by God's kindness, I was able to hear his confessions of temptation and sin. And that was just as beautiful as everything about Bob was. And isn't really in the end, isn't the world divided into those that humble themselves under God and those who refuse to? It's really very simple, isn't it? Let me read our scripture text today, which is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 49. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual isn't first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. That's what won me to this text. It had to be this text for Bob. The first man is of the earth, earthy. Delightfully earthy, huh? The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that the words of our, my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This text is a selection from the letter that we title 1 Corinthians, which the Apostle Paul wrote to the first Christian church in the city of Corinth. This is one of the most pungent 
letters of the New Testament, partly because of the decadence of the culture. In Corinth, as with Bloomington, Corinth was steeped in sexual perversions. She was a rich city, and as with most wealthy cities, her citizens were given over to entertainment, to the arts, to idolatry, and apparently, from the text of 1 Corinthians, also to aggressive litigation in pursuit of what each of them saw as their rats. The Apostle Paul rebuked him for this litigation, and his rebuke consisted of telling them they should put aside their legal pursuit of their rats and allow, especially their fellow believers, to do them wrong. And so remembering Bob's delight in words, we might title that section of this letter, Rats and Wrongs. One part of the decadence of Corinth was their infatuation with what they took to be wisdom. Corinth was a city drowning in narratives and conversations. Corinthians were filled with conceit, considering themselves learned and wise and perceptive and sophisticated philosophically. We remember that Acts records for us the same Apostle Paul preaching to the men of the Areopagus in Athens. They were woven of the same fabric as Corinth. And Scripture summarizes their conversations and philosophical disquisitions this way in Acts 17.21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. We have no problem recognizing this, do we? So that when the Apostle Paul ended his sermon to the men of Athens, by doing what we are gathered to do here today to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, most of the Athenian sophisticates mocked and ridiculed the Apostle Paul precisely because of his proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The rich and the sophisticated laugh at the resurrection of any dead, starting with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have taken every reward they could get here on earth. They have stored up no treasure in heaven. And thus, they scorn those who testify with 16th century Anglican cleric and poet John Donne. He also wrote, For Whom the Bell Tolls, who wrote in another of his many poems on death, ending the poem with this declaration of victory, Death, thou shalt die. Well, being wealthy and sophisticated themselves, the people of Corinth laughed at the resurrection of the dead. They were having their reward here on earth where they wanted it. No pie in the sky by and by for them. 
so I didn't know whether to use the word, but I'm going to use it. There's no word like it. This ennui, you know the word, this, what would you say, sort of emotional and spiritual decay and depression and slothfulness, is that good? This ennui had infiltrated even to the Christians in the church. So that the chapter of this letter from which our text is taken this afternoon, 1 Corinthians 15, is called the resurrection chapter of Scripture. Earlier in the chapter, the Apostle Paul has written this summary of what is at stake with the Christians of Corinth and their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's really upping the ante. He's saying, this is important. Listen to what he writes. He says, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. (laughs) I mean, that ups the ante, doesn't it? This isn't a hypothetical. For the Corinthians, the stakes were high. Now, listen to me, the stakes are much higher for us today. And you would say, why? And I would say, well, if what he was saying no to in the Corinthian church was actually the truth that there is no resurrection, then 2,000 years of Christians have lived and died fools with no forgiveness. Every single year, Christians plant their dead in graves. The ante goes up and up and up and up and up and up. And we either look wiser and wiser and wiser and wiser, or we look more and more foolish. Are any of you who belong to Christ interested in lowering the ante? I mean, honestly, do any of us want to hedge our bets about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So, if we want to live and die by Jesus, then the question is, do you? (laughs) You know, I mean, sorry. But honestly, look at your life. Are you throwing everything on Jesus? Or are you hedging your bets? You see, the Apostle Paul, every time he writes, he just constantly ups the ante on the people he's writing to. 
I mean, you just see this progression. You know, I can see it on the text. But it's like, if then, if then, if then, if then, if then, if then, if then. And then we're most to be pitied, all right? You see? And the part of it that I take most personally is not people pitying me. I mean, you know, I've learned from Bob. The part I take most seriously is where it says that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And I cannot bear that. I cannot bear the thought of the resurrection having no covering of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, I can't bear living with that thought. So this is an important issue. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, you know, it's the last out, the last inning of the last game of the World Series. You know, it's, it, it is the whole shebang. There's nothing left. Is Jesus Christ raised from the dead? Are we false witnesses and fools or true witnesses and wise? And for those of us who are Christians... Have we built our houses and lives on sand or on bedrock? The Apostle Paul begins this section by summarizing all the witnesses of Jesus having risen from the dead. He specifically speaks of 500 who saw him living after he was put in the grave. He uses the number 500. All right? Then he says what? Well, he says that most of them are still alive and bearing witness to that fact as he writes. Now, how do you pull that off? You use the number 500, you say most of them are still alive. In other words, go talk to them. You know? Go talk to them. Lower yourself. You're a skeptic? Well, you know, that means that you're able to face the truth. 500, go talk to them, right? Stellar evidence, isn't it? But sin corrupts our judgment in the direction that suits us. And so there remain Corinthians who refuse to accept the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And they were in the church. He's writing the church. So the Apostle Paul went on past listing testimony and evidence to deal with the philosophical justifications of Corinthians' unbelief. And this is the section from which our text is taken today. It's near the end of the chapter. Here in this section, the Apostle Paul appears to be responding to something close to ridicule of the possibility of any resurrection. And that ridicule appears to be focused on demanding an explanation for what sort of body the dead would have if they were raised. Are you all with me? Oh, yeah, yeah, the resurrection of the dead. (laughs) What kind of body? You remember that when the religious leaders came to Jesus to trap him, you remember the question, you know, first she was married, and then she was married, and then she was married, and and now tell us, whose husband will she be in heaven? (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. They're saying, oh, well, what kind of body? You know, this is the wisdom of the world. Now, what obviously was inspiring this ridicule was the 
complete intimacy with death people at the time had. And we have a hard time, um, we have a hard time entering into so much in Scripture because it's not the same for us. But if you think back to the time, they did not have refrigeration and they did not have embalming. You think about the heat of the environment. You think about the poverty. They didn't have professionals to keep the uglies away from us until the time came and then, you know. No, 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 no. The family loved their loved one's body, right? And so I'm sorry to bring it up, but if you won't think of anything else, think of the smell. Because the smell was a present reality when they were mocking the resurrection of the dead. Everybody knows. Remember the situation with Lazarus. Oh, Lord, he's going to have begun to stink. Remember that? And so, I mean, you know, if you're going to make a case and, and, and mock people with faith, it's a good thing to use to mock them to bring up what kind of body are they going to have? Can you all enter into this? It's nasty. And so, just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul tells us what they're saying. He says this. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body did they come? Everyone had seen and smelled what had happened to the bodies of the dead. And thus this question asking, what kind of body will the resurrected have? And then note the vehemence of the Apostle Paul's response. The next words he writes after he asks the question is this. You fool. Those are the next words. You ask what kind of body? You fool. Now, why would the Apostle Paul say, you fool? I mean, don't you want to, you know, win your audience? You know, don't you want to treat sincere seekers with gentleness? You know, why on earth would he say, you fool? He goes on and he says, that which you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. The urbane sophisticates were laughing at any resurrection, using death's earth to earth and ashes to ashes and dust to dust, throwing them in the face of the preaching of the resurrection. But the Apostle Paul calls them fools. They presented themselves as wise. And they posited resurrection bodies as ludicrous. Because of what humiliations of dead bodies were obvious to everyone then. The Apostle Paul calls them fools. And then opens up a little natural theology. Which is to say God's book of nature as opposed to his book of special revelation. The Apostle Paul says this. He starts with seeds, showing how the seed is planted in the ground, where it rots, and then comes back to life, beautiful and fruitful. Think of apples, think of tulips, think of corn, 
Think of planting any seed, any seed at all. What the Apostle Paul is showing through his reason and logic is that all of nature testifies to the resurrection every summer, fall, winter, and spring. The reason and logic of the Apostle Paul is that our flowers and our food and our fruit all depend upon the same labors and duties the resurrection depends upon, which is taking a seed, planting it, and expecting it to come forth again. A living flower, a living cornstalk with an ear of corn, a living apple tree with dozens or hundreds of apples. How could any man be such a fool that he watches and delights in the fruitfulness of the earth each springtime after the planting rot and decay have caused the seed to germinate and spring back to life, while at the same time denying the fruitfulness of the grave? It's as obvious as obvious can be. And so why will men not believe nature's witness? Surfing off of God's general revelation of seeds that are planted, rot, germinate, and produce new life, the Apostle Paul continues, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Now I ask you, could there be any other text to read and meditate on here today as we send off the seed of Bob Kapowitz's body to be planted next to the bodies of his father and mother out in New Jersey? The reason you love Bob is that Bob stared in the face of being planted every day of his life. Every indignity, every weakness, every inability to communicate reminded all of us that death is our end. And Bob had faith. He had faith to die, 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 die every single day of his life. He was constantly being sown in weakness. Don't we all desire men and women around us who are willing to be sown in weakness? Doesn't it just kill you to have a president and members of Congress and writers and pastors and elders who are sown in strength and going from strength to strength? And you just look at yourself and you look at them and you think, what's wrong with me? I can't stop thinking about my future death. You know, it's very interesting that Jesus talked more about God's judgment after death than, than anywhere in Scripture. And you know, the two images he used over and over again were what? The flame never goes out, and the worm never dies. 
And I couldn't help but think about that as I came to the end of working on this sermon and just thinking, even in that statement of Jesus, what a beautiful description of those who refuse to bow before God. They're planted, and they will be raised. They will be raised to an eternity of the worm never dying. Make no mistake about this. We have the testimony of God's own son. And he says it over and over again. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. And you say, what's this wee white man? And I say, sorry, I'm a Christian. That's just who I am. I live by Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You all with me? Are you with me? You better speak up today. You're with me. Are you anything more than a Christian? Is there something else you want to cling to? I mean, honestly, there isn't. Not for any of us. Not for our children. Not for our parents. Not for our grandparents. You know, and I read this, and I think of the dishonor of Bob's body, and then, you know, you think of it setting up the parallel between Adam, the first Adam, who, to say he blew it, doesn't even begin to address it. And then the second Adam, who brings life, you know. Even there, you've got the death, the germination, the fruit. And you look at Jesus, and he's bearing fruit constantly in the most weird places and people. <laughs> you know, you think about Gandalf. I mean, start with the name, right? He shows up to help Bob. He's going to be a Bob helper. And he becomes a Christian. And today, he's a member of this church. And his name, think about it, is Gandalf. <laughs> you know? And then you think about, you know, David Abbasara, and I could go on name after name of just the most unlikely souls who have had their faith strengthened for eternity through the, the hard, hard work of Bob Kapowitz. So, Our text ends with this. So also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. So we're back to this like seed, plant, life, okay? The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. Why? Well, because we, we plant the seed and it dies, it rots, and then it germinates, and then it produces fruit. The first man is from the earth, earthy, and that's what won me. <laughs> you know, I read that and I thought, yeah, that's Bob. And a lot of it actually was because he was Jewish. It, his, his ethnicity was so beautiful. You know, we had our Annie Lane from Flushing in New York, my dad's home 
back in New York City. We had our Annie Wayne, and I'm telling you that woman, she was only 4'10", but that woman, 4'8", 4'6", I don't even know how tall she was. But anyhow, that woman, anything bitter, she loved. So she loved vinegar. She loved horseradish, you know? And this was Bob. Even his uh, sense of humor was like horseradish, you know? It was just delightful. This morning I had my annual physical. I try to keep it to every five years, but my wife hassles me, so I, I actually had it this morning, and my doctor is Bob's doctor. And just to see the affection and respect and love of his doctor for him. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Well, Bob Kapowitz is now heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy. Yeah, what a wonderful statement about Bob. He has borne the image of the earthy. We will also bear the image of the heavenly. I mean, oh my goodness. So I want to end by reading a poem. It's the one I referred to earlier. It is a poet that I love. It's a little awkward because it's written centuries ago, back in the 16th century, but it's called Death Be Not Proud. Okay? Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful. For thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be. Much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee to go. <laughs> oh, my goodness, we have lost them this year. And we're so weary of losing our best man. What are you going to do? You know, you just like. <laughs> Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. Now he's talking about death. And he just do, does the work of kings and men. And, and with poison, war, and sickness, with them you dwell. And poppy, so think opium, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. <laughs> and better than thy stroke. In other words, he's saying, look, you know, I can, I can use opioids and, you know, I can sleep better than you can make me sleep, you know. I'll enjoy that sleep. Are you all with me? And then he says, why swellest thou? He's saying, why do you have such a big chest? You just think you're so great, all right? And then he says, one short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. 
my goodness. We're so happy for Bob, aren't we? We grieve not having Bob and Charlie and Joe and dear Adam here. But we would not wish them back. We would not wish them back. Because they have seen You're ready for this. They have seen the death of death in Jesus Christ. And so, this is a day of joy. Are you thankful for Bob Kapowitz? Oh my goodness, we're thankful for him. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for those who refuse to bow before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May they receive this sermon not as an act of aggression, but as a final warning. And may they heed that warning And may they come to the promised Messiah. Who was wounded for our transgressions. Who was bruised for our iniquities. And by whose stripes we are healed. Our Father, forgive us for our sins. Surround us with men that's like unto the men that surrounded Bob as he died, that we might have strength to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Comfort us as a church, comfort those around the country who are grieving the absence of Bob. Help them to turn to the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And help them, Father, to find comfort through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we have no one to turn to but you. And we come to you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.